1 Chronicles chapter 12 as we continue our study through 1 Chronicles together. At this point here in chapter 12, we're looking at the the life of King David. And uh, again, just sort of a a summarized form we get in Chronicles of much of what we looked at in 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, the book of 1 and 2 Chronicles, a book written to encourage the exiles returning back to Jerusalem after the captivity there in Babylon for 70 years. And so really just giving some summarized forms of some of the highlights of things that happened, times when God's people were in their unfaithfulness, still taken care of by the Lord. God still brought victories to them and helped them. Uh, And God's plan continued to unfold through them. And so particularly we're continuing to keep our focus on the messianic line. That's kind of the purpose behind first and second chronicles so that's why of course we find ourselves zeroing in on the life of king david as we know jesus would come through david's lineage now as we come to chapter 12 here again we sort of go back a little bit in chronology last time we were looking at the assembling together of david's mighty men the people coming to david after saul had been removed by God and David being put in the place on the throne where he was intended to be by God's design. Now, as we come to chapter 12, we kind of just revert back a little bit as we come to the end of the chapter. Again, we'll see them coronating David and welcoming David as their king. But chapter 12 gives to us really sort of the assembling of David's army and David's military as David's about to ascend to the throne. But it kind of takes us back during the time when he was still on the run in the wilderness, during those years when God was shaping his character in the wilderness. Because remember, there was a gap of time between David's calling and anointing and David actually ascending to and operating in the capacity of being the king that God intended for him to be. There was character shaping and development that God did for many years, uh, and there was that gap of time. So we kind of are in that gap of time now, as chapter 12 gives us a reference to the people starting now to rally around David right before he ascends to the throne. Verse 1 tells us, now these were the men who came to David in Ziklag, and that was sort of towards the end of 1 Samuel, chapters about 27 through the remainder of the book. David was in this particular area of Ziklag for a time while he was running in the wilderness. It says, notice verse 1, while he was still a fugitive. And remember, that's kind of how David lived for a while. He sort of had like a Robin Hood existence. He was running around the wilderness and Saul was always pursuing him and trying to hunt him down. Remember, because Saul was insecure, he realized that he was not in right relationship with God, that God was about to remove him and that David was God's anointed king. And so Saul was doing everything he could to stop the plan of God, to remove David, to seek to find ways to eliminate David. And so David continuing to refer from retaliating against Saul kind of just kept moving from cave to forest to wilderness to different locations so he's kind of living like a fugitive wandering around during this time from Saul the son of Kish it says and uh, it says during this time verse 1 they were among the mighty men helpers in the war so these were some who came to David's aid and rallied around him it says verse 2 these were armed men with bows using both the right hand and the left hand in hurling stones and shooting arrows with the bow. So they were ambidextrous, which made them very uh, uh, versatile in warfare. Again, keep in mind, in those days, uh, there was a lot more hand-to-hand combat. And so uh, if you lost a hand, it was good to be able to use the other one if somebody swung a sword or did something to wound you. So uh, this made... Uh, these particular warriors all the more valuable that rallied to David in this time. What's insightful is verse 2 tells us, notice these who are being described here that came to David, it says they were of Benjamin, Saul's brethren. So understand these men of Benjamin who were of Saul's lineage of King Saul's family line, at this time, Saul is still the reigning king historically. At this time, Saul was still on the throne, so it would behoove these people and it would be much more to their benefit and make their life a lot easier if they remained in allegiance to Saul because he was on the throne. It would be much better for them, a lot less risk, a lot less personal cost, and it would make their life much more easy and prosperous if they remained in loyalty and alliance to Saul 
But yet in the midst of this, they choose to turn away from Saul and what that may give to them as far as personal benefit. And we see them now come and give their loyalty to David, acknowledging in a sense David as their king, wanting David to reign over them. So we see them kind of coming now and making a commitment to David, you might say, at great personal risk and great personal cost. It would not be easy for them being of the family line of Saul to break away from Saul and to come make a commitment to David as their ruler and as their leader. But in some ways, uh, they were more concerned about being in relationship with the right ruler than they were their own personal benefit or prosperity or whatever in their lives. And I think in some ways this is a, a very fitting picture of what we at times choose to do by embracing Jesus as our rightful king and as the ruler over us. Certainly, by all means, in this world in which we live in, uh, it would, for many of us, would it not? It probably, for many of us in some ways, would be a life in some ways of greater ease, less hassle, less personal cost, less persecution, less difficulties, less problems at times. If in this very anti-Christian world culture, we continue to follow the ruler of this present age, who's the devil, and just kind of went with the way the world is going and continue to do that, uh, it'd be a lot less cost and risk and difficulty for us. Uh, but we choose to be in right relationship with the proper ruler, with Jesus, and submit to King Jesus. But that comes with a personal cost. Uh, there is a cost attached to following Jesus. There is a risk involved in choosing to live for Jesus in this world. Remember, Jesus himself even made it very clear when he said, to, before we become his disciple, he said, you should count the cost. Uh, there is a cost. So if you find yourself saying, man, I can't, this is kind of costing me to follow Jesus. Well, right. That was, that's part of the package. Uh, it's costing you now. There's great personal cost now, but there's great value and benefit that goes along with it as well. Uh, there's peace that the world knows nothing about inside of our soul. There's a joy of the Holy Spirit. There's the presence of the Lord that sustains us when everyone else abandons us and casts us aside. There are many valuable things, and more than that, there are great benefits to come when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom, and ultimately we get beyond this temporal world, and Jesus rules and reigns altogether. We're going to be much more thankful that we bore the cost, we took the risk of being a follower of Christ and being faithful to him when others wouldn't, but we chose to make the personal risk and cost to do that. And so here, in some ways, these men who come to David, they, they picture and foreshadow really what we choose to do as well, risky and costly, but yet they come and give their allegiance and commitment to David nonetheless. Verse 3 says, And the chief was Ahazer, then Joash, the sons of Shema'ah, the Gibeathite, Jeziel and Pellet, the sons of... Now, we're not going to try and pronounce all those names. You know that? Because uh, you won't know if I'm doing it right, and I will certainly not be doing it right. So we get a list there of these men who come to David described for us. Again, take notice. These individuals, we look at them. To us, we who are they? Uh, I don't even know how to pronounce their name, but God knew them. And they're on God's roster. And they're on God's record book and the Holy Spirit documents them and gives them space in the very precious inspired word of God because they were that important to God. And you know what? We may feel like, oh, my life's insignificant and it's of no value and I'm just kind of a you know, Christian who lives in obscurity and nobody even knows anything. About. Look, well, Jesus knows your commitment to him. Jesus knows that maybe in your family life that you are making the personal cost and the risk to keep following him when no one else in your family is or that you're willing to continue to be faithful to him when maybe others around you aren't. He knows your name and he's got it's on his record books and he's got it documented and he's fully aware of your faithfulness and is going to reward you accordingly because he sees your love and commitment to him. Verse 8, we're also told at this time some of the Gadites. Now, those would be those from the eastern side of the Jordan River. Remember the people of Gad, that one tribe? Uh, they were one of those who chose to stay outside of the promised land. They chose rather than enter in to settle for living outside of the promised land on the eastern side. But it was during this same time period that some of the Gadites came and they joined themselves to David at the stronghold. 
when he was there in the wilderness. These were mighty men of valor, men trained for battle, who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions. The idea is they were brave. These were strong, brave, fierce men as warriors who were trained. And they were also swift as gazelles on the mountains. Again, they're in sort of the you know, rocky, mountainous uh, area there and in Getty and some of those territories. Uh, th- these animals that were sure-footed and swift and fast and able to move very quickly. And this is, again, just a description of how these particular warriors were not only well-trained, but they were extremely brave. They were very swift. They could rush into battle and accomplish great exploits in military tactics. And these come now and rally to David. And again, from verse uh, 9 downward, we get some description of the names of these different individuals, Atai and Eliel and Johanan and uh, Elzabad and Jeremiah, these different individuals. Verse 14 says, And these were from the sons of Gad, captains of the army the least was over a hundred and the greatest was over a thousand so not only were they very helpful warriors they also had capacity to lead and to provide oversight it says some of these who came to david and rallied to him from gad they actually became captains those who were able to be assigned oversight or leadership as David would delegate this out. Again, this is sort of the assembling of David's army that we have described here in chapter 12. And if you're going to ultimately reign on the throne, you need a military uh, to be standing with you. And in that day, understand, they didn't have a military and then a police force. Your military did everything. Your military was your police force. They also were the ones who fought and engaged in battles for you. So having a good military was crucial, and David understood this. He was a a very successful general in his time. So he assigns now some over a 100. Others were able to lead a 1,000. Again, take notice, God gives us all different capacities. Uh, Some had the capacity to lead some groups, others bigger groups. Verse 15, and these are the ones, it says, who cross the Jordan. In the first month, which would be the the month of what we know of, of kind of our March, April uh, time of a year. So that's sort of the springtime. And that's why verse 15 says it was the time when it says it had overflowed, that is the Jordan, all of its banks. And they put the flight, all those in the valleys to the east and to the west. So they crossed during a time that was very unlikely. So these were also very sacrificial individuals because when the spring uh, would begin to arise and the snow on the higher elevations would begin to melt, the water would begin to run down the hillsides and the mountainsides, and that's then when the River Jordan would swell to a higher elevation more at flood stage as the, the, the snows were melting off and coming down and causing it to rise on its level. So most people didn't cross the Jordan unless there was some absolutely necessary reason during this time period. But these individuals wanting to be faithful to David, wanting to come and help and assist him, they made that sacrificial crossing of the Jordan at a very unlikely time. Verse 16, and these were some of the sons of Benjamin and Judah that came to David at the stronghold. And David went out to meet them. And he answered and said to them, if you have come peaceably to me to help me, my heart will be united with you. But If you betray me to my enemies, since there is no wrong in my hands, may the God of our fathers look and bring judgment. So this being a very precarious time, David not knowing when people would come to him, hey, are you spies from King Saul that are sent here to bait me and to trick me to ultimately kind of take over and then bring me back to Saul and put me to death or whatever? David had to be very discerning and he had to be careful to make sure that people were coming to him. They were genuine in their intention and sincere. But at the end of the day, you notice David's using discernment, but he also is just trusting the sovereignty of God. Uh, Because you can do everything possible to try and be wise and be cautious and be careful and be discerning and try and just use good wisdom and judgment. But the reality is at the end of the day, you ultimately can't control everything in life. You ultimately can't particularly control what the intentions of other people are and what the motives of other people are, what other people may want to do to you. So David says, as they come to him here, he says, look, be honest with me. He says, are you coming peaceably? He says, if you're coming peaceably, he says, and you want to help me and you want to join with us, then he says, you know what? I will extend peace and fellowship to you in return and my heart will be united. 
But he says, if you're coming to betray me, if this is a tactic of betrayal and you're just here to betray me and then turn me over to Saul so I can be put to death, he says, since I'm innocent in this situation, he says, then may the God of our fathers look and bring judgment upon you. David doesn't say, if this happens, then you know what? Beware, because my men who are skilled warriors that have faces like lions or swift and gazelles, we will hunt you down and kill you. Now, technically, David probably could have done that. David was an incredible warrior himself, and the men who rallied around him, remember we were looking at him last week together. They were going down into snowy pits and tearing up lions and defeating one man would defeat 300 men at this. I mean, these were, these were seriously skilled, brutal, tough warriors in combat. But David says here, if you've come to betray me and do me wrong, he says, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands, but he says, God will deal with you. And David says, I don't need to defend myself because God will defend me. And so David says here, if you have ill intent to betray me, then he says, may God look upon what you're doing wrongly to harm me. And he says, may he bring judgment upon you. And you start to find out in life, the longer that you journey along, that if you want to defend yourself at times when things happen, someone hurts you, they do you wrong, they betray you, they attack you. If you want to defend yourself, God will gladly allow you to. But I've also discovered, and I hope you're discovering as well, that God does a lot better job if you just let him defend you and take care of things. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't use discernment and wisdom and make ourselves vulnerable to being hurt or harmed, but ultimately we need to make our complete confidence in the Lord. And even when someone may have ill intention to harm us or do something, that we would ultimately, in a sense, say, look, in the same way, if you in any way tried to do something to harm one of my children, you know, God help the person that would want to do that. You know, there would be wrath. And, and I have to understand if that's my heart out of love as a human father, how much more is the love of a heavenly father? You know, there have been a few times over my life, I'm sure yours as well, where people have done some pretty nasty stuff, some pretty hurtful things. Uh, and sometimes I've genuinely found myself kind of just with this thought like, wow, I really feel bad for them. Because if somebody did something like that to one of my kids, I know what I would want to do to them. And I'm one of God's kids. And somebody just did that to me. So, wow, man, I actually feel bad for that person now. I actually kind of feel concerned for them because the Lord's going to deal with that. He's going to handle that person as a protective, loving father. And David here just shows wisdom in this way to be able to just rest in God's sovereignty to let God deal with those who harm him or attack him and to trust God that he doesn't have to overly try and be in control of everything himself and self-preservation and all these things we can kind of get caught up in. And again, verse 17, I think is a beautiful picture as well. David here is uh, of really uh, what Jesus represents as well. David says, as these individuals come to him, he says, look, if your heart is sincere in following me and you have a genuine, sincere heart to follow me, then there will be peace relationally between me and you. But if your heart is not sincere and you're coming to me, but you're just going to betray me because your heart's not sincere, then you are risking the judgment of God. And is that not a very fitting description of what it's like in coming to Jesus? If we come to Jesus and we're sincere and we genuinely have a heart to want to follow Jesus and help his purposes and be his servant, then Jesus says... I don't care who you are and what your background is. I extend to you peace on behalf of the throne of God. And King Jesus offers us peace. But by the same token, Jesus also knows the true intention. Of, and Jesus would also say as well in caution, but if you're just playing games and, and you want to come hang around me, but your heart is not sincere and you're just going to betray me and profess to be my follower, but betray me by living in sin and rebellion and just professing me with your mouth but not living for me genuinely and serving me, then he says you're risking the judgment of God coming upon you by not having a genuine heart in what you're doing. Well, verse 18 tells us that at this time, then the Spirit of God 
came upon, notice we see these phrases in the Old Testament, even as we do in the New Testament prior to the time when we're indwelt with the Spirit, even in the Old Testament at times, the Spirit would come upon people. He would rest upon people with power and anointing. So the Spirit came upon Amasai, chief of the captains, and when the Spirit came upon him, he utters a prophecy, a word of encouragement. He says, we are yours, O David. We are on your side, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you and peace to your helpers for your God helps you. So David received them and made them captains of the troops. So very beautiful. As the Spirit of the Lord comes upon this man, Amasai, he's prompted to speak forth a prophetic word. And again, even the New Testament, remember, describes when a prophetic word is spoken that it should be a word of prophecy, a word of exhortation or edification or comfort. And these certainly, imagine for David at this time as he's going through his struggles, were probably very comforting words, very edifying words. You notice that this man's statements, he's expressing towards David a heart of submission. We are yours, David. We're submitting ourselves to you. David, we are on your side. There's submission, there's unity. And he says, and may the peace of God be upon your helpers. And then he says this very encouraging thing. He says, for your God helps you. David, your God helps you. We can tell that God's helping you. And what a wonderful thing as we uh, perhaps are moved by the Spirit at times to maybe just not only let people know that we love them and we're supportive of them, but I think, man, sometimes just the simplest things like being prompted by the Spirit of the Lord to say something as simple as what you see there at the end of, uh, of verse 18, this little prophetic statement, your God helps you. You know, perhaps... you. Know, Tonight, tomorrow, maybe this week, the Lord may have you in a situation where maybe the most valuable, encouraging thing you could say to somebody is, God's going to help you. God's going to help you. You're not alone. God's going to help you through this. God will help you to deal with what you're dealing with or to face what you're facing or to get through what you have to get through. And what a wonderful, simple way to just speak a word of reminder to someone that can be such an encouraging, edifying, comforting thing that in the midst of what they're going through, I just imagine how that must have sounded to David for him to hear from this man. You know what? Here's what I know, David. Yeah, you may be you know, in a cave right now and it's dark and difficult and you're living like a fugitive, but you know what, David? God helps you. He's helping you and he's gonna be helping you, David. I can tell God always helps you and how encouraging that must have felt for David, I imagine, to, to hear that. And you know, maybe it's something we could pass on as a word of encouragement even to someone in the midst of our lives right now. Verse 19, and then some from Manasseh says, defected to David when he was going with the Philistines to battle against Saul, but they didn't help him for the lords of the Philistines sent him away by agreement saying he may defect to his master Saul and endanger our heads. Remember, that was that little season of time there where David got so discouraged, he ran off and he actually started you know, thinking he was gonna go out to battle with the Philistines and God kind of sovereignly intervened and it wasn't anything of David's doing, but the Philistine people actually said, hey, hey, hey you're not going out to battle with us. Get out of here. And God sovereignly got him out of a mess that he didn't even know how to get himself out of himself. And sometimes God does that. Verse 20, and then he went to Ziklag, those of Manasseh, who defected him were Adnah and Josabad and Jediel and Michael and uh, Elihu and these different individuals, captains, it says, of the thousands who were from Manasseh. And they, verse 21, they also helped David against the bands of raiders, for they were all mighty men of valor and they were captains in the army. For in that time, they came to David, notice, day by day to help him. Until it was, here's our summary verse, a great army like the army of God. So again, that's what this is describing here. The growth of David's army, the gathering of David's army coming together as it becomes a great army. It says these men were assembling around him to help him. And verse 22 says they were coming to him day by day to help him. Every day, day after day, God would just send help again, send help again. And, and they kept just assembling to David until it became like a great army. It's kind of like the, the picture of the army of God, the army of God from the heavens as David's military is rallying around him. Now, verse 23, down towards the rest of the chapter, just gives us the numbers 
of the different divisions or tribes that came to him from the 12 tribes of Israel. It describes the different people who came to him during the time. It says, verse 23, notice, they came to David at Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul over to him according to the word of the Lord. So it's going to give a list of the different numbers from each tribe who come as God is, verse 23 says, now turning over the kingdom to David according to the word of the Lord. This was the time, the set time had come, the moment had come to pass where after a big duration where God said, that's it, it's time to turn over what Saul's been doing to David and to put David on the throne. And these are the different ones that came to him. Verse 24 says that from the tribe of Judah, remember that was uh, David's tribe, 6,800 came to him who were armed from war. Verse 25, from Simeon, there were 7,100. From Levi, 4,600. It says, verse 29, from Benjamin came other relatives of Saul, 3,000. Until then, it says, the greatest part of them had remained loyal to the house of Saul. Of the sons of Ephraim, 20,800 mighty men of valor, famous men throughout their father's house. In verse 31, of the half-tribe of Manasseh, it says there were 18,000 that came to David who were designated by name to make David king. Verse 32, interesting little statement, of the sons of Issachar, it says, who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, their chiefs were 200 and all their brethren were at their command. So a little interesting insert there, verse 32, of the people of Issachar, it says they particularly were those who had understanding of the times, who knew what Israel ought to do. The idea is they sensed what was going on at this time? They sensed the times were changing. They sensed that in prior times, it wasn't the right timing for there to be a transfer on the throne, but now they're sensing, okay, this is now the time. The time has come to pass. We're in the times and the seasons where these things that God has spoken of are now about to happen and unfold. So they were able to discern and to understand the times in which they were living in so that people may know what to do, which was to turn the kingdom now over to David, and that David should be the rightful one reigning at this time. And again, just a very beautiful picture. Some prophetic ministries have kind of taken that little statement there and taken as their little kind of phrase to uh, what they do of understanding the times. And, and that's kind of where this comes from, being sensitive of how we're living in the last days and understanding the times that we're living in in such a way that we might know how we ought to live properly in these days that we're in. Verse 33 says, Zebulun had 50,000 who went out to battle, expert in war with weapons of war, stout-hearted men who could keep ranks. Verse 34 describes those from Naphtali. Verse 35, the Danites. And 36, those from Asher able to keep battle formation. And then verse 37 rounds things out with the Reubenites. Uh, Again, another, notice, 120,000 for battle with every kind of weapon of war. So notice, quite an army. Uh, Ultimately, this ends up being a few hundred thousand people. So David's amassed a pretty good army at this time as God is rallying people around him, recognizing uh, who he is. Verse 38 says, all these men of war who could keep ranks came to Hebron with a loyal heart to make David their king. Remember, David reigned seven years in Hebron as sort of the ruler over just Judah and Benjamin in the south. And then after those seven years, then his reign was expanded as he brought his capital to Jerusalem and he became king over all of Israel. The first seven years, only the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin supported his leadership But after that, all the rest of Israel defected and realized, hey, he is the rightful king. We should enthrone him. But at this point here, it says they come to him at Hebron. And now with a loyal heart, they want to make him king. Notice over all of Israel and all the rest of Israel were of one mind to make David king. So there's a unity now. They come to David with loyalty and commitment. They have a unified desire. They want to make David their rightful king over them. So verse 39 says they were there with David three days, eating and drinking, celebrating this coronation of David as their new king, as their brethren prepared for them. Moreover, those who were near 
from as far away as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali were bringing food and donkeys and camels on mules and oxen, provisions of flour, cakes of figs and cakes of raisins and wine and oil and oxen and sheep abundantly, this great celebration. Look at the end of verse 40. It says, for there was joy in Israel. Take notice of that. All of this celebration as David is enthroned and it says there was joy in Israel. Do you want to know why there was joy in Israel for one single reason? Because now the right king is on the throne. And when the right king is on the throne, it brings joy. It brings the experience of joy. When you enthrone the right king, a byproduct of that is joy. And look, in the same way, that is true in a spiritual sense in all of our lives. When you have the right king on the throne of your heart, you will experience joy. And to what degree you don't enthrone Jesus and you're on the throne of your heart, you will be miserable, right? Because we've all been there before. Why am I miserable? Probably because you're ruling on the throne of your heart right now and you're calling the shots and you're determining everything and you're in control or want to be in control. And so your moods and your feelings and your thoughts and your desires and, and all your, and if that's what's ruling and reigning inside of you, more than likely, I assure you, you've probably robbed yourself of joy and to some degree you're miserable, you're moody, you're confused, you're upset, you know, you're agitated. But when you enthrone Jesus and Jesus is the rightful king ruling in his rightful place, there's a joy that comes from that. Because you can just rejoice in the Lord, just rejoicing in the lordship of, of letting Jesus be in control and in charge. And there's a rest and there's a joy in that. Uh, and what a wonderful thing here. The people were experiencing joy because the right king is now reigning on the throne. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 13 says, At this point now, David, he's got a new kingdom under him. He consulted with the captains of the thousands and the captains of the hundreds with every leader. So he calls together a leadership meeting. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, that is, if you're at peace with this, and... If it is of the Lord, our God, if this is something that God wants, then let us send out our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel and with them to the priests and the Levites who are in their cities and their common lands that they may gather together to us. And verse three, let us, here's what he wants to, to propose. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us for we have not inquired of it since the days of Saul. So David comes to the throne here as he ascends to his place of rulership. He kind of takes on a lot of responsibilities, just like when a president is inaugurated and they take over the government and, and kind of you know have that place. I mean, that's a lot of responsibility. So, okay, what are you going to do and what's your agenda and what's your plans and so forth? And so here's David. I mean, he's a brand new king over Israel and, and not to make any analogies to current politics, but he inherited a mess from King Saul. His prior ruler gave him an absolute mess. He gave him a nation that had turned away from God. Saul was a horrible leader. He treated the people horrible. I mean, he just, he was an absolute basket case himself. And yet he reigned for a good number of years, a good few decades. So the people had been subjected to this. Well, David now takes over. I mean, He's got a military to organize. He's got a government to put into place and different officials and appointing people. He's got to get the economy straight. He's got to you know, implement some policies. He's got to you know, build new you know, roads and infrastructure. I mean, he's got all, to do all the things that a king has to do. And it's not in very good shape when he inherits it. But what's the first thing that David's interested in doing? It's bringing God back to the center of the national life of the people. That was David's first agenda. Shows you why he was a man after God's own heart. His first concern wasn't, let's get the military strong. Let's rebuild the economy. Let's... David's first desire was one of the things we definitely need to do right away. He calls together a leadership meeting and he says, look, if you're in agreement with this, if your heart seems to be in alignment with this, and if it is of the Lord, let's bring the ark of God back. 
whereby we might begin to inquire of God again and let God and his presence be at the center of the nation. Because that's what the Ark of God was. Remember, the Ark of God was the, the temple furnishing whereby the presence of God was manifested among the people and where they would go to seek God and, and God's presence and direction. It was the representation tangibly, the Ark as a, as a piece of furniture was, it was a representation of God's presence, of God's glory, of the fact that God's power and reality was in their midst. And, and this had been taken away and it, it was somewhere disconnected from the national life of the people because Saul had very little spiritual interest or desire for the things of God. He had interest in what was immoral and wrong predominantly. So David says, what we need to do is we need to get God back at the center of our national life. We need to bring things back to honoring God and showing respect for God and reverence for God. Bring God back to the center. So he says, if it seems good to you, and I like what he says as well, verse two, as he's proposing to bring the ark back, he says, and if it's of the Lord, he says, do you have peace about this? And is it of the Lord? That's a good way to consult and make decisions to seek some counsel from others. Hey, does this seem, do you have peace about this as well? And, and, and is this genuinely something that's of the Lord? Is this something that God's heart would be in alignment with? And he says, if so, let's bring the ark back because we haven't been inquiring of God since the days of Saul for quite a long time, he says. So verse four says, then all the assembly said that they would do so for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. In other words, this was a, a very obvious good thing. Now, as we're going to see, and as we know from our studies back in, again, First and Second Samuel, David has a desire to do the right thing, but he's going to go about it initially in the wrong way. And so it wasn't that David's desire was wrong. Uh, a lot of times David had wonderful desires, but the way that God wanted to accomplish things sometimes wasn't the way that David himself envisioned God wanted to bring it to pass. That happened as well with the building of the temple. Remember, David wanted to build the house of God, and that was in God's heart. David was in tune with the Lord. He was hearing that this is what God wanted to do. But ultimately, God said to David, David, it's good you had that in your heart. That is what's in my heart too. But David, I actually have some different ideas. I intend for Solomon to build that. And I want to build you a house and give you an eternal heritage as the Messiah would come. So again, at times we may have the desire of God in alignment with what we want to do when something's of the Lord. But we also not only need to do the right thing and do what God wants, we also got to go about it the right way. And sometimes that's where we can get off track a little bit. And this really is what happens with David initially here. Wonderful thing. I mean, he wants to, in a sense, bring a time of spiritual renewal to the nation. That's a wonderful thing. Would to God we'd have more national leaders and political leaders who would say, hey, what can we do to get God back at the center of our state or our nation? I mean, that's a wonderful thing. And so David desires this. He says, look, let's bring back the ark. Let's, let's reintroduce God's presence to the greatest degree into the lives of the people. The people are thrilled. This, this is great. Absolutely, let's do it. Now, the error we see here is David just doesn't approach it the right way initially. Uh, and some things go awry because of that. So it says there, verse 5, so David gathered together all the people from Shihar and Egypt as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim. Now, that's about 10 miles away from Jerusalem, and that's where the ark had been for years because of the fact that, remember, during the days uh, of early in 1 Samuel, around chapters 4 to 7, and remember, the Philistines conquered Israel, and they stole the ark of the Lord from them because they knew it was a representation of their God. So they stole the Ark of the Lord. Remember the Philistines? They brought it back to their homeland. They put it in the temple of Dagon. And, and then all these problems started happening. Ultimately, God started striking the Philistine people with tumors and all these painful afflictions. And, and again, kind of showing them, look, you may think you're in charge, but you're not. And then they were so sick and tired of all the problems, they put the Ark of God on a cart with some cows and they made some of these member little golden tumors that were similar or whatever they were experiencing we don't want to discuss or really know what that was i don't think and they sent it back and when it goes back to the people of israel they mistakenly don't handle it right initially as well and god outbreaks against them again so they then send it away to this location in kirjath jerim where it stays for years and years, not being utilized, God's presence isn't being sought. So 
David now wants to retrieve it from there and bring it back. So verse 6 says, David and all Israel went up to Baalah to hear Jathjerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the ark of God the Lord, who dwells, notice, between the cherubim where his name is proclaimed. Again, reminding us this is what God would do. He would choose to manifest himself there in the presence uh, of the ark of God or in that mercy seat spot at the top of the lid. Verse 7, so they carry the ark of God, notice this now, on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ohio drove the cart. Then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, with singing on harps and stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, and with trumpets. So, again, they're very excited. All this enthusiasm breaks out among them. So it, this is kind of like a big parade. It's like a big national parade. They go up with all these people. They have all these musicians and people who are you know, talented singers and, and they make this big to-do. It says they get a brand new cart and they put it on a brand new cart and they got these two guys, maybe who are the best drivers, I don't know, Ohio and, and Uzzah. It's interesting, their names, Uzzah and Ohio, their names mean strong and friendly. And so they look, well, we need, let's get somebody that's really strong and somebody that's really friendly so that we do this right. And they put it on a new cart and they're ushering it in and everybody's singing and dancing and there's all this great enthusiasm, this great to do, this great celebration. But yet the reality is in the midst of all those things, which look really, really good from the outside, it's outside of God's will and God's design. Because Numbers chapter four and five tell us that the ark of God wasn't to be slapped on a cart and wheeled down the road with a parade. It was actually to be carried reverently by the Levites as, as the presence of God was to be born, in a sense, you might say, by God's people. And why? Because that was symbolic. Because God ultimately causes his presence to be born and carried by his people because now the presence of God dwells inside of us. We now bear and carry around the presence of God on this earth as the spirit of God and Jesus dwells within us. So God wanted them to carry the ark. Where did they get this idea to put it on a cart? The Philistines. That's how the world does it. Maybe that's even why they got friendly and strong. Hey, that's how the world does things. If you want to do things the way the world does it, get a brand new cart, shiny, I mean, just top of the line. We need the best. I mean, techno, just the best that we've we got to do well. And, and we need somebody really friendly because, you know, we need, a, we need a, somebody that's good, congenial, can really work the people, put friendly up front and get somebody that's really strong. That just, you know, and, 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 and so they got this whole thing laid out here and get all the best music and let's make it as loud and energetic and enthusiastic as we can. There's all this emotion and enthusiasm, but the reality is there's all this excitement, but it's genuinely outside of the design of God's spirit. It's not consistent with God's word. And not that any of those things are wrong in and of themselves, but if they are contrary to what is a genuine spiritual experience, then emotionalism and pizzazz and all this other enthusiastic stuff, if it's just a big emotional experience, it may not be a spiritual experience. And there is a difference. And I'm not saying that the Spirit of the Lord can't allow us to have an emotional experience with God. I'm not saying that. But there is a distinct difference and sometimes God's people make a very grave mistake by thinking a very emotional, excited, enthusiastic experience is a spiritual experience. That's not always so. And sometimes there can be a grave mistake there. You can go to a concert or a pep rally and have a big emotional experience. That's not spiritual. You can get all excited and crank the music up and have the best of everything. It's not necessarily an indication something spiritual is happening. So here they make this error, again, kind of, again, why they didn't consult the word of God. They were just looking to the way the world did things. Well, that's how the Philistines do it, and they seem to be doing well. So let's borrow the ideas from the world and the Philistines, and let's implement that in the things of God, and maybe we can really get something big going here. This is a, a big thing. We're trying to really you know, usher in the presence of God. Let's, let's see what the world does and how they do it and borrow their ideas. 
So as they're doing this, verse 9 says, when they came to Childon's threshing floor, Uzzah then put out his hand to hold the ark for the oxen's stumble. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark and he died there before God. So imagine this. As they're going down the road, the cart that they're using, and I have to wonder, I'm sorry, I sometimes think maybe further than I should. I have to wonder if God's just watching all this and God just steers that cart right towards a pothole on purpose and just goes, let me, okay, let me just, they think this is really slick. Let me just, and and they just got like, well, let me take a little stone there. You know, you have to ride a skateboard before and you can be going and thinking you're so cool and just, you know, if you people who skateboarded back in the day and you can be, and then all of a sudden your skateboard hits the tiniest stone, face plant, right? I mean, <laughs> and, and so God allows the ark to stumble and then Uzzah makes this grievous, irreverent mistake and he feels like, you know what? God's about to fall. He might not be able to get up. Let me, and so he reaches out his hand spontaneously, impulsively, he does something which, again, was a direct violation because Numbers chapter 4 not only said the ark was to be carried with poles, but Numbers 4 also said they were not to touch the ark of God lest they die because they weren't to trifle with the presence of God. They weren't to be cavalier. So you couldn't just go up and touch the ark of God, which is symbolic of God's presence and his glory and his power. In some ways, certainly God was cautioning them. Look, you can't just approach me. I am too holy and awesome for you to just walk up and just put your hand on me. And again, the ark also represented what? God's glory. And God said, I don't want anybody touching my glory. And so he reaches out to try to impulsively just do this, again, violating the word of God. And ultimately, God judges him right on the spot and he dies. And imagine this reality as they're going all this party thousands of people right you got this big parade and all this excitement and then all of a sudden this happens i imagine a hush went over everybody in the crowd and all of a sudden oh my goodness what just happened because now something horrible has happened a man's actually lost his life as he tried to spare the ark from falling over he was worried and thought he was doing something helpful and really it ended up actually being very detrimental as he lost his life in the process verse 10 says then the anger of the lord aroused against him he struck him because of what he did he dies on the spot verse 11 says and david seeing all this became angry because of the lord's outbreak against uzzah and therefore that place is called perez uzzah or outbreak against uzzah to this day and david was afraid of god that day saying how can i bring the ark of god to me so notice david's reaction David basically has three reactions. When this experience happens, it says first David's afraid, or excuse me, first David's angry, then he's afraid, then he's disappointed. Things don't go the way David intended them to go. This is the problem here. David had an idea. He was excited about it. He was enthusiastic. He got the whole thing in motion. He's got all these people and everybody on board and everything. And now this humbling experience happens and the first response of david is actually says david he gets angry lord how could you do that lord i was trying to do a good thing how would you kibosh my plans like that lord and so right away david's just angry how could you do this lord this is and so his first response he's actually angry then he goes from being angry to then being terrified because now he just realizes whoa that's like talking smart mouth to your dad right it's like ooh. Maybe I shouldn't do that because uh, my dad could lay me out. And then he's terrified. Then it says he becomes afraid and he's realizing, oh my goodness, you know, the Lord has just severely you know, shown his displeasure in the situation. He was afraid of God. And then he ultimately says, verse 12, how can I bring the ark of God to me? In other words, he then goes from being angry to being afraid to then just completely disheartened and, and disappointed. He says, I... I, I guess just this can't happen. And, and he goes way to the other spectrum. Now he's just completely giving up on the whole idea. Well, that's not right. How can I bring the ark? I guess God just doesn't want this to happen. I guess it's just not. And now he like overreacts in what? Disappointment. And he just goes way to the other extreme, just thinking that this isn't even something that God would want to do. And that wasn't the case. It was just with God's way of doing things. God doesn't work by the MO of, well, the end justifies the means. That, that's our 
crazy idea. We think, oh, well, as long as there's a good end, it doesn't matter how you get there. And we make that mistake sometimes even Christians. Well, as long as in the end you want to do something good, it really doesn't matter how you go about getting there. And God says, no, it does matter. I don't just care that you do the right thing. I want you to do it the right way. I want you to do it the way that pleases me in alignment with my word and consistent with me being the one to direct what's happening because ultimately then God gets the glory and things stay in line with what God's design is. So verse 13 says, David would not move the ark with him into the city of David, but took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in the house for three months, and the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. So David takes the ark, brings it over now again, not to Jerusalem, puts it in another person's house. We're going to see when we get to chapter 15, David's going to recoup. And they're going to go and get the ark of God and they're going to bring it back to Jerusalem and put it back in the center of the, the, you know, the national life of the people and bring God's presence back amongst them. Again, all of what was a good desire. God wants to do this and God's going to do it. And David's going to say in chapter 15, what happened is the first time he's going to say, uh, we did not consult God. In other words, we didn't pray about it properly. We didn't consult the word of God. We didn't say, God, we believe you want to do this, but how do you want to do it? Or God, what's... And so sometimes we have to learn that lesson and we have to go back and consult God and, and take a different approach and, and let God be the one to lead and direct things. And David's going to discover that over these next few months as he irons these kind of things out. But notice verse 14 in the interim, what the Holy Spirit wants to show us there is there was no problem on God's end. Because it says when the ark went to the house of Obed-Edom, it didn't say that he was striking dead all of Obed-Edom's relatives. No, there's no problem with God here. It says the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. The presence of God in that man's house, if you would, was bringing tremendous blessing to that home because that's the heart of God. That is what God wants to do. And you know, what a great reminder, even as the ark of the Lord was blessing the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had, you know what, again, what's the ark of the Lord representative of? Can I remind you one more time? The presence of God and the glory of God. Do you want God's blessing on your household? Make the presence of God a part of your home. Welcome the presence of God into your home life and glorify God in your household. And God will bless. God will bless. Let's stand together.